in your handout, you will notice that this evening we're going to look at the first two verses of the epistle of Jude. So if you have your Bible open to that place and you have the handout before you, we'll begin with an article I wrote in 1995, an article which is provided in your handout by way of the online link to it. The title of the article was, What Should I Read on the Epistle of Jude? And in that article, I coined the phrase, Jude's Literary Trinitarianism. Now, that may seem like an odd combination, but I was referring to the rhetorical and literary style of the epistle and Jude, the author of it. Now, Trinitarianism would suggest to you something that has to do with three persons and one God, one God and three persons. I'm stealing that idea to refer to Jude's use of triads or triplets. Now, we saw an example of that last week when we looked at the structure of the entire epistle. Remember, I pointed out in the redemptive historical sandwich of that part of the structure of the letter, that he uses three Old Testament examples twice over. In verses 5 to 6, he uses three Old Testament examples from the Exodus to the damned angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in verse 11, if you'll notice, he uses three more Old Testament examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, that's an obvious example of his triadic or triplet uh, use of words, patterns, examples, etc. And it is frequent. You'll see it through this epistle over and over and over again. So borrowing a phrase from professional sports, Jude is a three-peter. That is, he repeats things three times or he uses things three times in sequence. Now, it doesn't mean he uses the same word three times, but he used to using these triadic patterns. He likes the rule of threes. All right, now, having uh, noted that, let's take a look at the first verse and see if you can detect the pattern of threes that is in that first verse of his letter. And when you're ready to risk your reputation, just blurt it out. Very good. Kay's put her finger on three verbs in that first verse. Called, beloved, and kept. And that is precisely an example at the opening of this letter of the rule of threes. All right, what about verse 2? Mercy, peace, and love. Yes, mercy, peace, and love. Another triadic or triplet pattern. Now, there's been a major study of Jude's style, his particularly his literary and rhetorical style, and that study uh, was published over 20 years ago. It was a product of a dissertation, Ph.D. dissertation by J. Darrell Charles. 
And it's a magnificent piece of work. Unfortunately, the book is out of print. It's called The Literary Strategy of the Epistle of Jude. Uh, You could get it from an interlibrary loan in a library if you're interested. But it is, in my opinion, the definitive study of this style of rhetorical construction, this literary character of the Epistle of Jude. Charles helped us a great deal uh, isolate, lay out, express what is contained in this letter from the standpoint of rhetorical and literary analysis. All right, now, we pointed out last week that the Greek of this letter is quite skilled. It's quite advanced, which means that Jude was knowledgeable in Greek and perhaps even Semitic rhetoric and literary style. I uh, point this uh, out this evening, these patterns of threes, in order to confirm what we said last week about his ability with language, particularly his literary skill. So we're beginning to see it even in the first two verses of this letter. Now, summarizing these first two verses, you'll notice that I have indicated that verse 1 is underscoring or emphasizing soteric privilege as it's conferred. Now, what does that word soteric mean? Yes, having to do with salvation. Thank you, Ben. Or we might call redemptive privilege conferred. Obviously, beloved, kept, called, those are redemptive privileges, and they are conferred by God upon those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. However, that second verse is a soteric benediction. It differs from the first verse in that it contains the words of a benedictory formula. Now, we don't usually think of a benediction coming at the beginning of a letter. We think of Paul's letter, epistle to the Hebrews, the benediction comes at the end. Verses 24 and 25 of this epistle to Jude are often used as a benediction. In fact, as we pointed out last week, they're not really benedictory stanzas. They are, in fact, doxological stanzas. They are giving glory to God at the end of the epistle, having given the benediction at the beginning of the epistle. So it's a little out of step with what we're used to in the New Testament, but nonetheless, This is a soteric benediction. Any benediction in the New Testament would be a redemptive pronouncement, a soteric benediction possessed. Namely, the second verse is indicating that which has been taken up, appropriated, possessed, participated in by the readers of this letter. But now we want to look at something even more remarkable. We want to look at the Greek structure of these of this first verse. Now, I'm not doing this in order to intimidate you. I know most of you do not read Greek, but I want you to examine those uh, Greek phrases on the page in front of you, and you'll notice that they are distinguished into two sections. 
Each of the two sections has three lines. Now, as you examine those two sections, you'll notice that there is something which is duplicated in each of those two three-line units. And as you look at the letters, I'm wondering if you can tell me what is duplicated. Ben? Jesus Christ, actually, in the order in which it appears. Yesu Christu, which is in the second line and also in the fifth line. And you'll notice that I arranged them on your paper so that they would be underneath one another. All right, so within the first three lines, there is in the second line the Greek for Jesus Christ. The same pattern occurs in the second three lines of the first verse. and the second line of those last three lines, Jesus Christ also appears on that, in that second line position. What does that suggest to you? Out of three lines, it is the second line that has Jesus Christ. Out of three lines, it is the middle line that has Jesus Christ. Your smile went up, Loretta. Why are you smiling? You are are doing exactly what Jude wants you to do. Go ahead. It's the center. It is the center, is it not? Look what he has done. He has placed Christ at the center of the opening lines of his epistle, and he has duplicated it In good Semitic style, he's duplicated it so that in repetition you won't miss it twice over. But there is a distinction. There is a distinction between the first three lines and the second three. Both of them are centered in Christ. But who's the subject in the first three lines? Now there you might want to read your English. You might be able to make it out from the Greek, but you may want to read your English. Who's the subject in the first three lines? It is Jude himself. It's the author himself. So that for the author, for Jude, Christ is central. But what about the second three lines? Who is the subject, Ben? Ah, is there not any subject there? No, I don't mean the subject of the sentence grammatically. I mean, who is the who is the subjective person or or group of persons? Say, Jude is the is the subject in the first one, Jude the uh, brother, the servant of Christ, and the brother of James. It is the people to whom he's writing in the second. Okay, so notice the author and his audience. The author centered upon Christ. The author, Jude, Christ-centered. The readers, Christ-centered. 
And there's a reflex between the two. In other words, that which is central to the author is reflexively central to the readers and vice versa. That which is central to the readers is central to the author. Christ is central. He even writes it that way. He constructs his first verse so that you will know that Christ is the center of his life. And Christ is the center of the life of those to whom he is writing the faithful, called, kept, and beloved of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable piece of literary construction. Yes, it's done in Greek, which is one of the reasons you have to know the Greek language in order to see these things. It falls out when you begin to analyze the way the text the way the text unfolds. Now, there's another interesting element here. It's consonants, and you'll see that underneath the diagram, the word consonance. Consonance is related to assonance. Some of you who have been with me for several years will know about assonance or assonantial imagery. You may not remember But it's the opposite of consonants. Consonants is the opposite of assonance. Okay? Let's work with consonants and then we'll go back to comment about assonance. Consonance is a similarity of sound. With the terminal consonants, 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 okay? Not vowels, consonants. All right, now what are the terminal consonants? that are repetitively sounded here in this first verse. Well, you will notice at the end of the word Judas, which is the first word, a little, looks like it's a pregnant S. It is actually the letter S. It's a sigma in Greek, and we would translate it by the English letter S. So that S is duplicated at the end of Dulos, which is the last word of the second line, and that is duplicated with Adelphos, which is the first letter of the third line. In other words, the terminal sigma, the terminal S sound, is repeated three times in that first uh, section of verses. So you could underline the terminal S's and see that he's playing on that consonantial sound, that consonantial rhythm. In fact, Charles, whose book I mentioned here in the handout, is persuaded that the book or the epistle of Jude is poetic, and he points to this type of thing in order to show its kind of poetic style. I'm not quite as persuaded of that as he is, but nonetheless, I throw it out, for you can see here, that terminal sigma, and it's repetitive so that when you would say these words in Greek, you would hear that terminal S, and it would carry its own kind of cadence with it. But we're not done. What does he do in the second group of three lines? He has the terminal S again, doesn't he? You look at the end of many of those words, and you see that terminal sigma. But he also has something in front of that sigma. He has what looks like an O-I-S, pronounced ois in Greek. So he has tois, he has a gapemenois, 
He has tetraminoes and he has clay toys. Here he's got another series of the same consonantial, that is, they end in S, but he actually places some vowels in front of it. The same kind of sound, ois, 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 ois. The consonants are the same all through that first verse, that S terminal, that terminal S, which alerts you, as you would hear it read, that he's doing something characteristically literary or rhetorical as he constructs this letter. All right, now, this exercise is not just merely an exercise in looking for patterns. There is an issue here with respect to the translation of this verse, which is still hotly debated. I'm going to ask you to read your first verse I'm going to start with Ben and ask him to read his version of verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called to be loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice the last phrase that Ben read, kept for Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to ask anybody that has a, a Bible that didn't see what that didn't have what Ben read there for Jesus Christ to read what they have. It's kept by Jesus. Kept Christ. by Jesus Christ. All right. So we have in that last line kept by or kept for. Do we have any other translation? All right, those are generally the two prepositions that are used, kept by or for Jesus Christ. Now, you will notice that there is no preposition in that line. In the Greek line, we're on line five. It begins with the word kai, looks like a K-A-I, and then it is followed by Yesu Christo. But that little I underneath the omega at the end of Christ, Christo, looks like a W with a little I underneath it. That indicates that it's in the dative case. Now, that's a grammatical case. But you'll notice up above that, Christo, there is the word theo. It is also an omega or what looks like a W with a a little I under it. That is in the dative case. But before theo, you see that little en. That's a preposition. En theo. But there's no preposition before Yesu Christo. So the translation that inserts by or for into this line is interpreting that dative case to mean for or by Jesus Christ. Is that what Jude is doing? Well, we've noticed that he's using a pattern of symmetry all through this opening uh, stanza, opening verse. He's got symmetry of line. He's got centrality of Christ symmetrically duplicated. He's got symmetry of consonants. He's got symmetry of sound plus consonants. Okay, there's a great deal of symmetry here. All right, now, reading then that third line, that first line of the third, second section there, translating the Greek to those in God the Father having been beloved. That's a literal translation of that line. And Christ Jesus having been kept or held firm. Last line, called. So what we do idiomatically in English is we put the called up above with the first 
line the twice up there. Those who are called in God the Father, having been loved. And, now what would you want to say? For Jesus Christ? By Jesus Christ? Or would you want to say in Jesus Christ? In other words, that end preposition controls that second line. He drops it out because he's assuming that you understand, having repeated the dative, that is that little W with the I underneath it, that you'll insert in as consistent with what he has placed previously. Now, there is no one that translates it in Jesus Christ. Everyone uses by or for in order to render this second uh, 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 beloved, this this second perfect passive participle. Okay. Now, why am I making a big deal of this? Because I think Jude is drawing you not only to the central union in Christ by the way he structures these first two sections of the first verse, but he's repeating that when he indicates that you're not only in Jesus Christ, you're in God the Father and in Christ Jesus as well. In other words, the emphasis is upon your your participation by union in God the Father and Jesus Christ, and that's the reason he uses that end preposition, but he doesn't need to repeat it. Because if you're in the Father, you're in the Son, aren't you? If you're in the Son, you're in the Father, aren't you? And that leads to another observation. Being in the Son, being in Christ and in the Father is underscoring the equivalence of being united to both. Which would then argue strongly for a high Christology of Jude in his epistle. Now, we wouldn't be surprised at that. After all, he's the brother of Jesus, and he comes to believe in him as the Messiah, namely the Son of God. So he recognizes him as such. But here, having placed that part of, having placed that preposition in such a role here in the second part of the verse, God the Father, Jesus Christ, he is implicitly, if not explicitly, placing them in identical personal relationship. That is, what we would say in Trinitarian theology, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet these are not three gods, thank you, Athanasius. For I just quoted the Athanasian Creed. All right. Now, what I'm trying to point out here is that there's a great deal in this first verse that is literarily, rhetorically in front of us when we look at the Greek as he wrote it. Now, you don't read the Greek, I understand that, but I'm drawing it out for you in such a way that you can see the genius of what he has done here. And I think that genius even extends to what he believes about God the Father and Jesus Christ. He believes that they are equal in dignity and in power, let alone glory. 
You still with me? I know it's Greek to you. But you can see it if you see this similarity in patterning. All right, any questions? David. Uh, what little I remember from Greek, uh, I understood the dating to be dating of advantage. And so... The death here? Or the dative? Oh, dative of advantage. Okay, yes. So, who, whose advantage are we speaking of? It's the advantage that comes through Christ. Because if you're in God the Father, and that's a dative, okay, N plus the dative, <clears throat> and you're in Christ Jesus, dative, then it's the advantage to you to be identified, to be united with them, to be joined to them by faith. Isn't that a great advantage to you, David? Yes. Amen. Yes, Art. So, Jim, what you're pointing out to us is that in most translations mistranslate these verses. They're grasping, okay? They, they pick what is the obvious dative equivalent as a preposition, for or by, okay? But by doing so, they're adding a word that's not in the text. They're adding a word that is not there. Where you point out, straightforward translation doesn't add any words it's already there implicitly yes because the dative is being repeated it's already there it makes perfect sense I think so it even makes more poignant theological sense because it draws you into that relationship of union with Christ Jesus all right Now, let's take a look at one other element in this verse. I leave it to the last because I'm not quite persuaded of the force of it, but I will point it out to you. You will notice that in the first section of three lines of this first verse, we have Judas... Of Jesus Christ, the servant, Dulos, Adelphos, brother, De- and, and brother of Jacob. Now, the terminal S's or sigmas on the end of Judas, Dulos, and Adelphos are all nominative case. Okay, we mentioned the dative with that little W with the, with the I underneath it in the next set of three. There are various cases in Greek as there are in Latin. The nominative case is the case of a name, subject of a sentence, predicate nominative, etc. We have three nominatives in in these first three lines. Judas, servant, and brother. So that even as we had the triplet of called, beloved, and kept. There are some who suggest we have another triplet at the beginning of the verse. We have three nominatives, Judas, servant, and brother. The reason I'm not quite persuaded of that is that although there are three nominatives, they don't stand in the same relationship as the three verbs 
called, beloved, kept. And therefore, I don't think that they're consistent in terms of the way they function in the verse. However, it's a minor point. We, uh, You can think about it. You may be persuaded of it as I've explained it. Uh, there are... There are some uh, powerful scholars who believe it's there, and I tip my hat to them for pointing it out. Uh, I wouldn't have seen it without uh, reading their comments on it. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm not sure that it's that Judas and servant and brother are consistent with called, beloved, and kept. All right, now what about this self-designation? How does Jude describe himself? He's a bond servant or a bond slave. All right, this is a very strong word in Greek. It means a slave who is a chattel to his master. It's a uh, it's a term which implies uh, the lowest level of the social totem pole. Now, we're not unfamiliar with this term. Jude is using a term which the Apostle Paul uses. And I've listed the occurrences in which Paul describes himself as the bond slave or bond servant of Christ, even as Jude does here. So does James, so do James and Peter. So in other words, this is a self-designation which is fairly routine in the New Testament amongst a number of individuals who describe themselves in this relationship. Well, why doesn't he call himself the brother of the Lord? He was the brother of the Lord Jesus, was he not? Well, why doesn't he call himself the brother of the Lord? He calls himself the brother of James. Why not the brother of Jesus Christ? Not worthy. Not worthy. Not worthy. Very good. Brother of James places him on the same level as that brother. But brother of the Lord, he's not in the same category. Why is he not in the same category? He is not God. Very good. His, his brother Jesus is something other than he is. He's the God man. Jude is a man man. Nothing more than man in Jude. All right, so it's a declaration here of his humility. He avoids calling himself the brother of the Lord because in his humility, he sees himself in the role of a slave to Jesus Christ, a bond slave to Jesus Christ, even as Paul sees himself in that relationship. And so out of his humility, he uses a term in which which many people will regard regard as degrading, but it is not degrading for him, as we'll see in a moment. Yes. All right. Now, why bond slave? He's actually operating on a mimetic pattern. Now, mimesis is this pattern of mirror imitation that we pointed out in our studies in other contexts. 
Let's have a, a reading of Philippians 2.7 to begin with. So if you'll look up Philippians 2.7, whoever comes to it, just go ahead and read it out. He took upon himself the very nature of a servant. And the Greek word in that verse is doulos again, bond slave. Who took upon himself the nature of a servant, Cheryl? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ did. The Son of God takes upon himself the nature of a bond slave. Same word that Jude uses here. Now recall that when we outlined the narrative echoes in this epistle with the echoes of the life of Jesus. That we pointed to John chapter 13, verse 16, the place where Jesus says that the servant is not above his master, the bond servant is not above his master. And he says that in the chapter of the Gospel of John, in which he had done what? He had washed the feet of the disciples. He had taken the towel and the garb of a bond slave and done what a low-life bond slave would do. Is Jude using a term which binds him in imitation to his brother Lord? Is he using a term which draws him into a pattern of identification to what his brother Lord did? His brother Lord made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bond slave, even as he washed the feet of his very own disciples. So that in mimetic relation, in mirror-like relation, in the relationship of imitation, Jude describes himself the way Christ describes himself. Christ acts as a bond slave. Paul labels Christ as one who took the nature of a bond slave. Jude says, I'm happy to be his bond slave. I'm happy to imitate him in that lowly, humble service. Which also alerts us to a reverse paradigm. We think of abject slavery as the highest form of bondage. Abject slavery being shackled to death, the children of Israel in Egypt before the Exodus. Bitter bondage which ended up in a period over a period of 400 years in death. There was no escape from their lifestyle except by the grave. But this bond service which is shackled to death is the bond service of sin. It is bond service to Satan, a cruel taskmaster. It is bond service to condemnation. It is bond service to the drudgery of bondage, to the guilt and condemnation of sin. It is bond service to indenturehood, to being indentured permanently and perpetually, 
to a taskmaster who will do nothing but strike us with whips and blows and crush us with death. Jude had been a part of that bond servant. He was a slave to his own sin. He was the ally and servant of Satan. He did not believe in his brother. (coughs) He thought he was mad or beside himself. He was in bondage to his own rejection of his brother, the Lord Jesus, as the Messiah. And insofar as he remained in that condition, he was in a state of perpetual indenture to the taskmaster of the ruler of the principalities and powers of this evil age. That bondage and servitude was broken. He was emancipated by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that he was bound in reverse paradigm, not to death, but he was shackled to life. Not to sin was he bound, but to righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ. Not to Satan as his cruel taskmaster, but to Christ as his kind, tender, and generous Lord God. Not to condemnation out of abject servitude, but to justification out of emancipated redemption. Not to bondage bitter, bitter to the grave, but liberation to resurrection from the grave and life everlasting. And not perpetual indenture to a cruel taskmaster, but eternal redemption as the purchase of God to a gracious Lord. What Jude was and what Jude had become through grace. The reverse paradigm is implicit. It is epexegetical. It is contained in the use of this term which he uses to describe himself. He was the bond slave of sin until Christ set him free. And now he rejoices to be called the slave of Jesus Christ. In that slavery, there is true liberty. In that slavery, there is life, not death. In that slavery, there is grace, not wrath. I will be the slave of Jesus Christ forever, says Jude. I will be the slave of Jesus Christ unto all eternity, says the Apostle Paul. I will rejoice in being the slave of Christ Jesus. This slavery is good. It is truly emancipated slavery. So, if you see yourself as a slave of Christ, that is a good thing. It is a good thing. It is not a bad thing to be the slave of Jesus. Jude tells you it's not. Paul tells you it's not. Jesus 
gives you the example that it's not. And in so doing, invites you to enter in to the slavery that he undertook. Not only in washing his disciples' feet, but in dying for their sins. Any questions? All right, now, self-abnegation. What's abnegation? Not you are counting yourself. Give me one word. Rejection. Not rejection. Self denial. denial. Self denial. Self renunciation. Okay, renunciation of self. All right. So Jude renounces himself. He is the bond slave of Christ, who is his. What does he say in verse four? He is his master and lord. Yes. So he uses the language of relationship. He is the bond slave of Christ, which makes Christ his Lord and Master. And in mentioning his brother James, as he denies himself in terms of bond servitude, he is underscoring the fact that his brother is of greater esteem than he. And I believe the mention of James here is done while James is still alive, which is one of the reasons last week we pointed out that this epistle was written before James's execution in 62 A.D. I think the implication here is, you know, I can't prove it because he doesn't say, and my living brother James, but I think that's the implication. The brother of James uh, <clears throat> indicates that James is still alive. All right, now we come to the verbs which we pointed out as we looked at the pattern of threes uh, initially, particularly in the second part of that first verse, the beloved or loved, the kept or held firm or unguarded or protected or guarded or protected, and the word called, which is not a perfect passive participle. It's actually an adjective which is derived from the verb to call. So I'm going to, for all intents and purposes, treat it as a perfect passive participle, although I warn you, grammatically it is not. But it functions as such, as a adjectival verb here. All right, now what do we mean by perfect passives? The perfect passive participle... <clears throat> is translated literally having been loved or having been beloved, having been kept or having been held firm or having been guarded or having been protected. And as I'm treating called as a perfect passive for, uh, for purposes of parallelism here, <clears throat> perfect passive of called, having been called. All right, now what is the significance of these passive verbs that Jude uses here? Well, first of all, who is passive? The ones he's writing to. The ones he's writing to? Anyone else? Jude. Jude himself. Okay, so man the sinner is passive. Who is active? God. God the Savior is active. 
All right, so the perfect passive participle is indicating who is in the active role and who is in the passive role, who is in the process of doing the work and who is in the process of receiving the work passively. Okay, the passive voice here is intentional. It's in, it's indicating this divide between who is active in the business and who is passive, who is doing the work in the one who is receiving it passively. All right, now that sets us up for a somewhat elaborate analysis of the perfect passive tense in Greek. And we'll take a break and come back where we'll bring, where we'll begin with that line on the second page of your outline, once and for all action. Now we're going to talk about the Greek verb system for a moment here, simply because we're faced with the verbal tense here, the perfect passive tense of the Greek verb in the grammar of this first verse. And you'll notice that the first element in defining the perfect passive tense is that it is a once and for all action, meaning that it is completed in the past. If we used saved by grace as an illustration and made saved perfect passive, we would say having been saved in or by grace. And the implication of that would be having been saved in grace, completed action in time past. But the perfect passive of the Greek verb system doesn't simply mean a completed action in time past. It means a once and for all action, there's the completed in time past part of it, which continues in the present. The Greek perfect passive means once and for all, completed in the past, continuing into the present. So that with our illustration, having been saved in grace, one continues presently to be saved in grace. The past action completed of having been saved in the grace of Christ continues presently to be active. But we're not done yet. For this Greek perfect passive is a pregnant tense of the verb. It's full of life. Once and for all action in the past, which continues in the present permanently into the future. So that having been saved in grace time past and continuing to be saved in the grace of Christ time present is irreversible into time future. It extends permanently into the future. All right, now that's that's the essence of the Greek perfect passive system. 
Now let's take a look at the verbs that Jude uses here, these perfect passive verbs that he has in verse 1. The first one is loved or beloved in God the Father. The perfect passive has the force then of once and for all, completed action, time past, loved or beloved in God the Father. But you continue to be loved or beloved in God the Father, time present. And you continue to be beloved or loved by God the Father, time present, permanently into the future. Meaning that you will not be unloved or unbeloved in God the Father. Time past, time present, time future. Jude is using a verb tense which is extremely powerful in terms of the action of God. The power of God. The power of God to once for all complete the action upon the passive subject. The power of God and the action of God to continue that action time present upon the subject. And the power and action of God to permanently secure that action time future. It is the act of God, past, present, and future. So that you rest upon the love of God the Father in and through Jesus Christ the Son, by and in the Holy Spirit, time past, time present, time future, and irreversible love of the triune God. It cannot be undone, for to undo it would have to undo the power of God, would have to undo his action, which no creature is sufficient to contest. Nor would you want to, would you? All right, so consistently then, we look at the next word, once and for all kept. Or held firm, or guarded, or protected in Jesus Christ. Time passed. You continue to be kept, held firm, guarded, protected in Jesus Christ, time present. And you continue to be kept, held firm, guarded, protected in Jesus Christ, permanently time future, so that there will not be a time when you are unguarded or unprotected or not held firm in Christ Jesus by the action of God the Son, the act, the powerful act of God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And finally, using called as a perfect passive, for the sake of consistency here, 
which I think is the implication, actually, of the uh, Greek adjective, once and for all called, past act completed, continued to be called, invited, included, time present, and continued to be called, invited, included, permanently into the future. There will never be a time when you will be excluded Never be a time when you will be uninvited. Never be a time when you will be among the uncalled. It is God who has acted in calling you. It is God who has acted in loving you. It is God who has acted in keeping you, holding you firm. It is God who has acted. You are passive in his action. He has done it for you and in you. You are not sufficient to undo what he has done. For he who has begun that good work in you will complete it. That's the perfect passive sequence. That's the strength of this verb tense. And Jude uses it in order to encourage his readers, in order to ground them in the hope and the comfort of this wonderful God the Father, Jesus Christ the Lord. The Holy Spirit appears in this epistle as well. He does it in order to undergird them with the preservation and security of their redemption in the power of the God who has acted in their behalf while they are the recipients of that wonderful, active, almighty power of the triune God. Now, at the bottom of the second page, I've suggested that we think for a moment about the narrative biography of Jude with respect to the passives that he lists in this first verse. We pointed out at the beginning of our study this evening that those passives in the second line of verse one are uh, directed towards the community to whom he writes, to the recipients of his letter. But let's think about those passives with respect to Jude himself. Was he called actively as he passively resisted that call? And was that call which actively pursued him sufficient to overcome his resistance and make him willing, willing to answer the call in the day of the Lord's power? Was there a time in his life when he was indifferent to his brother, but he was actually more than indifferent, he was hostile to his brother? Was there a time in his life when his brother would call people to come unto him And to take his yoke upon him. And brother Jude said, I don't want any part of it. I resist that call. I reject your identification. You're claiming to be Messiah. Lord, son of God. I say no. I do not believe on you. You are a madman. You are beside yourself. You should be locked up. Yes, as we reviewed the narrative biography of Jude, we noticed that change in him. 
possibly in the seventh chapter of John's gospel, possibly. That change occurs when Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles says he's the light of the world and the fountain of living water. And Jude drinks of the fountain and basks in the light, finally. Perhaps that's where the shift occurred in Jude's own narrative biography. But we know for sure that it has occurred by the time he's in the upper room in the first chapter of the book of Acts, because he's on the other side of the resurrection with the resurrection community, rejoicing and praying with them and fellowshipping in the absence of his ascended brother Lord. In other words, he has taken in the death, resurrection and ascension of his brother and he believes it. It's become part of his story. His own narrative biography has been altered by what his brother has done in history. So whether it's John 7 or whether it's at the foot of the cross or whether it's after the resurrection, Jude has been in his passive state. He has been acted upon by the grace of God, by the love of God. He had been called by the voice of God, and he does not resist that call any longer. It is the call of his risen brother. It is the call of his crucified and slain brother. It is the call of his ascended and glorified brother. It is the call of his brother that sits at the right hand of the majesty of the glory on high. That is the call that he has answered. He has been called. Time passed continues to be called time present as he writes his epistle and has been permanently called time future into glory. He will never be uncalled. He will never be excluded. He will never be uninvited from that call, which he has answered by God acting upon his heart to enable him to hear the call and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same manner, has he not become loved of God? Has he not experienced, has he not felt, has he not been drawn into the wonder of the love of God the Father? Time passed. He came to know his Father in heaven as the one who had loved him from the foundation of the world, who had called him at a due time, at the right time, to believe on his only begotten son. He had bent his hatred, abandoned his hatred. He had bowed his hatred, bowed out his hatred at the feet of his brother Lord, perhaps even in that scene in the upper room where Thomas falls at the feet of Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, perhaps Jude was there and saw it. But he is certainly present before the risen Christ, before that upper room prayer meeting, before Jesus ascended and they were waiting upon the descent of the Holy Spirit. He has been loved of God the Father and he has embraced the community of the love of God the Father and he is in that community praying and waiting for the descent of the love of God the Father and God the Son in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. And finally, he too 
has been kept firm, held firm. He too has been guarded and protected. It is the very reason that he is so alarmed at these intruders who are disturbing this church, this community. Because he has been kept in the grace of God. And these intruders despise the grace of God. Verse 4. Kept in that grace by the active power of God. It did not depend upon him to keep himself in the grace of God. The grace of God kept him in that protected, guarded, firm hold. He was in the hand of Jesus. And no one can take him out of Jesus' hand. He is kept in the hand of Jesus. And no one can take him out of the hand of Jesus who keeps him secure, keeps him in the cradle of his hand. But grace upon grace over that hand of Jesus, which holds Jude firm, guards him firmly, protects him firmly, keeps him firmly. Over that hand of Jesus is the hand of God the Father, over the hand of God the Son, over the life of Jude, the disciple, the bondservant of Christ. Will you take Jude out of the hand of God the Father, from the hand of God the Son? Will you take yourself out of that hand? You wouldn't want to, let alone were you able to. Because that hand is the hand of the almighty, active God of all power, grace, and glory. And that hand of the Son of God is enfolded by the hand of God the Father. Two persons of the Godhead holding you, nestling you in the hollow of their hands, keeping you. Time past in their hand, time present in their hand, time future in your hand, you will never be thrown out of their hand. They could not do it to you without denying themselves, without denying their power. They would not do it to you. For they have called you, loved you, and kept you because they love you in calling you and keeping you. You are the apple of their eye. They delight in you. You are beloved of them. In fact, from all eternity, you have been beloved of them that they would call you in due time and keep you, holding you firm in that doubly enclasped and folded hand which places you at the center of everlasting life. So the narrative of Jude 
is reflective. He reflects upon that which belongs to his audience because he's experienced it himself. The riches of the passive past, completed, present, continuing action, future, permanent action of God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son, the Lord. Any questions or comments? Yes, Frank. You said that uh, God the Father and God the Son hold um, us and we can't, you know, past and present. Um, you said that the Spirit was in Jude. Where would that be? Well, <clears throat> you're not going to be in the hand of Jesus without the Holy Spirit bringing you. Right. Okay? And that means that the Father is also endorsing the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing you. But I'm referring to the fact that Jesus talks in John 10 about the two hands, the hand of the Son and the Father. I'm not neglecting the Spirit, but, uh, you know, it's involved, but it's not in that particular text. It's by implication there. It's by good and necessary consequence there, because you couldn't be in the hand of Jesus without the Spirit. You said earlier that there was the Father, when you started, you said the Father and the Son, and it's in this, we'll, I'll show it to you, the Spirit is in Jude. Yes, it is. Uh, just uh, for a minute, you take a look at verse 19 and verse 20, and you'll see the Spirit mentioned in 19 and the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 20. So the Trinity is in the epistle. Okay, Frank? Good, thank you. David? <clears throat> It's a perfect passive. So it has a punctiliar force as a perfect, meaning past action completed. But it's the perfect tense. Yes, Pam? Well, about um, right here, is he sometimes referred to as Judas? He could, he, he could be called Judas, yes. Well, if you see in the Greek. Scriptures and Acts where it talks about them being up in the upper room. Mm -hmm. And then it says, and Judas, the brother of James. Yes, that's the other Jude the less. Okay. Okay, so there is another Jude in the band of the disciples. But in that passage that you're looking at, Acts 1, 13 and 14, the brothers of the Lord and his mother. That's where Jude would be involved or included. When they say brother, it's the same parentheses as the same in Jude in my Bible. So... It, it's not the same Jude. No, no, not the Jude that's laying there, but Jude is in the brothers of our Lord that are listed there, that are mentioned there with, with Mary. In the upper room, wasn't the Holy Spirit fell on them? Mm-hmm. So in the second chapter, they are waiting. In the first chapter, they're waiting for the descent of the Spirit. In the second chapter, the Spirit descends upon them. So there's no reason to think that he was not present in chapter 2 as he was in chapter 1. All right, on to verse 2. Uh, we may not complete this this evening, but if not, we'll revisit it next week and go on. We've already pointed out that the second verse has another one of Jude's favorite triads. His triplet device, his rhetorical three-peter, mercy, peace, and love. 
and we have described these as benedictory words, <clears throat> a benediction at the opening of epistle, an epistle which is not typical of the New Testament letters. But these words are also reflexive. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What do I mean by reflexive? Once again, do these words belong to Jude even as he wishes them or pronounces them upon his audience? In other words, is there a symmetrical relationship, a relationship of parallel identification in this benediction between what he wishes for his readers because he himself has received it. In other words, he is a recipient of mercy, peace, and love, and he wishes that to be reflected upon his audience. This bond between the author and his readers. It is a tight bond. It is a bond of union with Christ, a bond of communion in the Holy Spirit. It is a bond in the love of God the Father, etc. In other words, this bond is reflexive. It goes both ways. As he pronounces the benediction upon them, he pronounces it out of what he has already received by benediction from God himself. And finally, it's supplicatory words. Supplicatory meaning what? What's a supplication? A petition, okay, a prayer request. So these are prayer words. He is asking that God may pour out. It is his prayer that God may pour out upon his readers mercy, peace, and love, as it has been poured out on me, so I pray it may be poured out on you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied, be expanded in superabundance to you. For God is no piker, nor is he any Indian giver. He gives in wonderful superabundance. All right, now, as we look at the language of verse 2, we're reminded of some symmetrical parallels. Once again, this pattern of duplication or symmetry. What do we see in verse 2, which is similar to something we see in verse 1? Art, you're looking up. Yes, but now we're looking at something in particular in verse 2 that is also particularly listed in verse 1. It is the love. The love of what in verse 1? The love of God the Father. So love in verse 2 is a benedictory formula associated with what just preceded it, the love of God the Father in verse 1. Now, in verse 2, let's... Look for a symmetry in verse 21. Verse 2 and a symmetry in verse 21. Margie? Mercy. Mercy of? Whose mercy? 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so mercy associated with the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 21, who is the Son of God. God the Father, beloved in God the Father, the mercy, receiving the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. And what about verse 2 and John chapter 20? Okay, John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. Let's take a look at those passages. And when somebody has it, please read it out. John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. All right, now why do I suggest that that verse may have some poignancy with respect to Jude verse 2? Jesus says to them what? Loretta? Peace be unto you. And then he breathes what? He breathes the Holy Spirit. So the identification of the peace of God with the Holy Spirit. Is that possibly what Jude is alluding to here? Is it possible that he was present in that room and he saw Jesus do this? Okay, to the disciples as a witness to what was going on. In any event, the peace in verse 2 may in fact be the other person of the Godhead in this benediction. The love of God the Father the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the peace of the Holy Spirit. I'm suggesting it. That's the reason I have a question mark beside it. I can't make a demonstrable proof of it. When we look, as Frank noted earlier, about the presence of the Holy Spirit in this epistle in verses 19 and 20, there's no association of the Spirit with peace in the letter. Nonetheless, it is conceivable that in this threefold Benedictory statement in verse 2. He is alluding to the three persons of the Godhead. He certainly is alluding to the Father with the love uh, word. He is referring to the Son with the mercy word. That is definitely true from within the context of the letter itself. And so by default or by implication, I'm suggesting that the peace word is identified with the Holy Spirit, Allah, John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. Now, verse 2 is a unique benediction. It is the only place in the New Testament where these three words are found in a benedictory pronouncement. The only place, the only occurrence of mercy, peace, and love. Why? Why is it unique? Because the experience of Jude in the grace of God was unique. God doesn't save everybody the same way. The experience of Jude was unique. 
And he had experienced the love of his brother. He had experienced the mercy of God through his brother's sacrifice and resurrection. He had experienced peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, having probably been present in Acts 2 at the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. He had experienced all three of these and identifies two of them explicitly. The love of God the Father, the mercy of Jesus Christ the Lord. His Trinitarian benediction is an explicit, like is likely an explicit testimony to his Trinitarian experience. His experience of the Trinitarian love of God the Father, the Trinitarian mercy of God the Son, and the Trinitarian peace of God the Holy, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. This is a poignant verse because he asks in this benedictory prayer and blessing, he asks that love, that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Is it just love that he wants to be multiplied, the last of the three? Or is it all three? It's all three that he wants to be amplified. One, all three, that he wants to be plenipotentiary, that is, fully powerful. He wants these graces, he wants these wonderful benedictory blessings that he's received and that he wishes upon his readers. He wants them to be increased in their life, multiplied in superabundant fashion. Grace upon grace, love upon love, mercy upon mercy, peace upon peace. The abounding of these wishes, these words of blessing, these prayers of supplication for his readers. And so Jude wishes you tonight mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And he wishes it for you even as he had experienced it from the triune God. He wishes you tonight the love of God the Father and the mercy of Jesus Christ God the Son and the peace which passes all understanding of God the Holy Spirit. And he wishes that to you in full amplification, in full abundance of amplification until that fullness is experienced perfectly in the place of everlasting benediction in the eternal dwelling place of the triune God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, we did not finish uh, the handout, so we'll pick up here uh, next week and resume some further observations about verse 2, and then we'll move on 
to verses 3 and perhaps verse 4. As you can see, we're making haste slowly. (laughs) But I trust that you are uh, feasting upon the riches that are here. For they are riches of grace indeed. Shall we pray? Father, this brother of your dear son, our Lord Jesus, bears upon himself the marks of your own hand in his life. A hand of genius and craftsmanship, rhetorical wisdom and style, but all to draw us into the wonderful abundance of your love mercy, and peace, we who are bond slaves of Christ Jesus, we who have been called and kept and loved. Lord, we rejoice in the riches that are here in these words and phrases, in the way that they draw us into the centrality of Christ Encourage us to go on in faith and in confidence, trusting that what has been done to us actively by your power, we passive subjects, recipients of it, that what has been done to us has been done in such a way that we are kept continually past, present, and future in the riches of that grace, that love, and that mercy. And so, O Lord, may mercy, peace, and love fill our hearts, both now and forevermore. For we pray in the name of our Mediator and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has gifted us with these privileges. Amen.